Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. Tonight, I'm doing a little pilot teaching for a new series that I want to begin. And the name of the series is this, Big Little Books, Big Little Books. And really, we're going to take a journey through the minor prophets. And they are little books, but they've got big meaning. They're called minor prophets because of the length of the book. Not they're less important than the major prophets, you know. It's the length of the book. Isaiah's is a gigantic book. It's called a major prophet. Well, tonight we're going to look at Joel. Joel. And Joel is a minor prophet. It's just three chapters. So it's minor because it's a small book. But it's filled with content, big content, big truth, and big relevance. So we're going to start big little books. This is part one, Joel one, part one. And let's say a prayer. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy, for a rugged cross, an empty tomb, a risen Savior, for blood that still forgives and cleanses and covers and makes whole. Lord, for the spirit that still fills us and empowers us. And we give you praise for all that you've done. I pray that you would touch us tonight. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. All right, Big Little Books, part one, Joel one, part one. I just felt to start with Joel. I don't know why, but I felt to start with Joel, so that's where we're starting because I'm the teacher. (laughs) So the name Joel means Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God. Theologian James Boyce points out it's kind of a short confession of faith, similar to the primary New Testament confession, Jesus is Lord. Jehovah is God. It's no wonder that God uses Joel to remind his people Jehovah is God. If you'll remember Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, Shema means hear, it's the first word in that verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, there's one true and living God, and he's identified himself as Jehovah. And that's the Latinized version of the Tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew, Yahweh. And so there's one God, and that God is this God, Yahweh. Jehovah, later we would find out the God of Abraham, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Shema. The Shema is the last thing a Jew wants to say before his or her death. It's a deliberate declaration that there is one God, and I know who this God is. Now, Jehovah, Yahweh, is not a proper name. That name would not be revealed until much later when Gabriel told Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, Matthew one twenty one. But Joel, the name, means Jehovah is God. Now, some of us are familiar with portions of Joel, 
especially when you look at Acts chapter 2 and the birthday of the church, and some of that is familiar territory to us, and Peter preached that sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and he said, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out of my spirit in those days. And that's exciting, right? Like, that's cool. Wow. Yes. Pour out the spirit, dreams and visions, prophesy. I love that. But I'm just going to tell you, that's a little ray of sunshine about halfway into this three-chapter little big book. And uh, it's, uh, there's a lot said before and after Joel 2.28. And I'm just going to tell you right now, some of it gets downright gloomy. Everybody say gloomy. This is uh, kind of a standalone book, and Joel is kind of a standalone prophet in that he mentions no peers. He refers to no other prophets. He, it, it looks as if he's not standing shoulder to shoulder with, with some, you know, a school of prophets around him. He mentions no prophets. He mentions no kings, no other leaders. But, but here's the deal. He didn't have to have some kind of multitude of counsel because verse 1 says the word of the Lord came to Joel. So there is a word that came to this prophet Joel. And he spoke to the southern kingdom of Judah. We've talked about it. He never even mentioned the northern kingdom of Israel. Many scholars date the book of Joel to 835 BCE, meaning this was 114 years before the Assyrian takeover of Israel in 721 and 249 years before the Babylonian takeover of Judah in 586. Now... Just because Joel doesn't mention them doesn't mean there were no other prophets ministering around the same era. For instance, we know Obadiah, Jonah, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, Micah, they all ministered around this time. But Joel's the first one to put the prophetic trumpet to his mouth. Only Obadiah prophesied before Joel, maybe starting about 10 years earlier, it looks like. Uh, Joel is filled with, with some pretty abysmal prophecies, a lot of gloom and doom, fire and brimstone, if you will, and a little hope sprinkled in. Thank God, right? Thank God for a little hope. So you, you don't have to like loosen your tie. Oh, well, nobody's wearing a tie. Anyhow, you don't have to loosen your tie tonight because like, oh, this is, is going to be. <clears throat> there is some hope in here, and we'll pull some good stuff out. Verse 1 is where we're starting. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? Say, big little books. That's where we are. Verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Pethuel, there's a name for your next son, some of you. Pethuel. Joel's father is Pethuel. And the name means one who considers Jehovah to be God. Another meaning is a vision. Of God. It's kind of cool. The man with a vision of God names his son Jehovah is God. And that makes sense because if you ever truly get a vision of God, there's only one on that throne, and it's Jehovah. The man who considers Jehovah to be God will also see to it that his kids know 
this one true and living God. And again, Deuteronomy 6, we've already kind of looked at the Shema, but look at the rest of it. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says it like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. Notice when you sit in your house, not when you take them to Shabbat, to Sabbath school, right? You'll teach them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You'll tell Betty by stories about this God to your children. You'll bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes as those phylacteries that the Jews will wrap around their arm and wrap around their head. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We've got a little thing we picked up in Israel that's on on our doorpost at our house. And it's a thing that the Jews do. And it's in there is a little scroll from Deuteronomy 6.4 in that little scroll. When you walk in our front door, look on the right and you'll see it. It's right there. It's like you're going to put this everywhere your family is. You're going to drill it into them. Hear, O Israel, there is one Lord and his name is Jehovah. We know that that name is Jesus, right? That, that revealed name, the name that's been given, the one name that's been given under heaven by God where we're called, uh, wherein we're called to be saved. Now, we, we focus a lot on the next generation here at LifePoint, wildlife kids, young life, and, 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 that's, and that's good. And, and I've already mentioned it. You need to teach your kids in your home. Don't put all the responsibility on the teachers and preachers in the body of Christ to do the teaching and preaching for you in your home. As a matter of fact, every parent has been called to preach. You've been called to preach to your kids. Well, I don't want to put religion on them. Well, somebody is. This world's doing a fine and dandy job of it. What you need to do is out-preach this world to your kids. Now, you hear what I'm saying, son. There is one God. Come on now. And he's revealed himself. We understand his name is Jesus. And you better serve him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You lead the way. You preach it to your babies. You preach it to your kids. I'm telling you, the, the devil has a price tag on this generation, and he's doing everything he can, and he's using good means and good tools. People say, why y'all have lights and sound and smoke and all that stuff? Do you see the enemy coming after our kids in such provocative ways and such seductive ways? Now, we're not trying to manipulate anybody, but we want to have an environment that is conducive. Your eyes are going here. You're watching. We're trying to communicate the most powerful truth in the world to your babies. Amen? Come on now. We're about that next gen. But, 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 but you don't need to just rely on the teachers here at LifePoint, the preaching here at LifePoint. You need to preach and teach to your kids yourself. Now, having said that, you better get your babies to the house of God where the preachers and teachers are preaching and teaching. Amen? Come on now. You better do it because I'm telling you. Oh, my goodness. I gotta stop. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get on a I'm gonna get on a uh, I'm gonna chase a rabbit right here. But 
I'm just telling you, when we're more interested in our kids being educated secularly than we are about our kids being educated religiously, and I use that in a good term, then we've got a problem. The most important thing in the world is that they learn about Jesus. And it's our responsibility as believers and as parents. Now then, verses 2 through 4 sort of parallel Deuteronomy 6. Kind of fascinating as I was digging into this. Notice Joel 1, 2 through 4. Hear this, the word is Shema. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten, and what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. These verses speak of an unprecedented event. And this event has to do with, can you guess? Locust. Locust. A, a tragedy unlike anything they had ever experienced as a people group. And, and, and check this out. Joel is not announcing a future judgment. You know, like I'm a prophet and I'm foretelling something that's coming. He's describing apocalypse now swarm after swarm after swarm after swarm of locusts had come first the chewing then the swarming then the crawling then the consuming locusts and they had left everything absolutely devastated and Joel is saying now Judah you you need to hear you you need to understand you need to tell your children and your children's children. I told you this would get gloomy. There's something bad that has happened. And it's going to get worse. The plague was so unusual. He said, you're going to tell your children about it. You need to tell your children about it. In other words, it's one of those things that you'll say, children, I remember back in the 30s, you know, we went through the Great Depression. It's that kind of thing. I remember the locusts. You can't imagine the locust, the, the chewing locust, the swarming locust, the crawling locust, the consuming locust. It's very weird. Tough times have a way of marking us, don't they? They leave a scar. It reminds me of those tree rings. I think I've got a picture of some tree rings we can put up there. Excuse me while I work. Tree rings, look, you got first year of growth. That was beautiful. Oh, we had a rainy season. Man, got a lot of rain. Look at the growth that happened there. Oops, then we had a dry season. Man, then we had a forest fire. Ouch! You know, and you could just, you could look at those rings and you could tell a lot. If you could look at our lives, you could tell a lot about our lives. Couldn't you? Man, that was a good time. That was a bad time. That was a forest fire. Like the burned up right there. Hardly anything left, but thank you, Jesus. I came through and started sprouting a little bit on the other side of that disaster. It's, it's called dendrochronology, the study of tree rings. 
And uh, our lives can be filled with those marks. Good times, rough times, lush, rainy seasons, seasons of drought, fire, storms. They leave a mark. They have a story to tell. And Israel had its marks. Judah had its marks. The locust would be a big one, a big scar. And, and you say, well, it's just bugs. Just bugs, man. Like, how bad can it be with these bugs? They're just, you know, we used to catch those little uh, grasshoppers and locusts, if you will. And, you know, I know what those chewing locusts look like. They chew tobacco. Do you know what I'm talking about? You don't? If you've ever caught them, those, those big locusts, they'll spit this brown stuff out. It's a defense mechanism. It, it looks like chewing tobacco. It's like they, they got some, well, never mind. Okay, so y'all don't know anything about what I'm talking about. That's the chewing locust. But how devastating can these bugs be? Listen to this. In 1915, a devastating plague of locusts covered what is modern-day Israel and Syria. 1915. The first swarms came in March in clouds so thick they blocked out the sun. The female locust immediately began to lay eggs. 100 at a time. Witnesses say that in one square yard, there were as many as 65,000 to 75,000 eggs. In a few weeks, they hatched, and the young locusts resembled large ants. They couldn't fly yet, and they got along by hopping. They marched some 400 to 600 feet a day and devoured every speck of vegetation along the way. After two more stages of molting, they became adults who could fly, and the devastation continued. David Najagi of the BBC says this, Desert locusts, or, and he gives the Latin name, have often been called the world's most devastating pest, and for good reason. Swarms form when locust numbers increase and they become crowded. This causes a switch from a relatively harmless solitary phase to a gregarious social phase. Isn't that a funny way to describe these locusts? They're like, oh, now they're gregarious and social. In this phase, the insects are able to multiply 20-fold in three months and reach densities of 80 million per square kilometer. Each can consume two grams of vegetation every day. Combined, a swarm of 80 million can consume food equivalent to that eaten by 35,000 people, humans, a day. A day. In 2020, you think we've had a bad 2020. In 2020 alone, locusts have swarmed in large areas in dozens of countries, including Kenya, Ethiopia, Uganda, Somalia, uh, Eritrea, India, Pakistan, Iran, Yemen, Oman, Saudi Arabia. And when swarms affect several countries at once in very large numbers in modern vernacular, it's called a plague. A plague. I have a picture of some locusts. Don't I have a picture? I don't know if I have one or two, I think. Yeah. Well, that's a terrible pixelized picture. It looked better on my computer. But the bottom line is I have some other pictures that uh, it was just amazing. It was horrifying. Just locusts. Everywhere. Notice that 80 million per square kilometer. That's astounding. So why, why did Judah get smitten with a plague of locusts? Guzik points out some reasons why, some dark history here. Are you with me? 
We'll get through chapter 1, I think, tonight. <clears throat> um, 835 BCE, when, when he's writing, it was a time of turmoil and transition in Judah. At the end of the reign of the queen mother, Athaliah, she was wicked. And the beginning of the reign of King Joash, Athaliah seized power at the sudden death in battle of her son, Ahaziah, who only reigned one year. You can look this up in 2 Kings 8.26, 2 Kings 11.1. 1. Athaliah killed all her son's heirs except for one who was hidden in the temple and escaped. One-year-old Joash, 2 Kings 11.3. Her six-year reign of terror ended in 835 B.C. E, when the high priest Jehoiada overthrew Athaliah and set the seven-year-old Joash on the throne. During her six years as queen over Judah, Athaliah reigned wickedly. She was the granddaughter of the ungodly king Omri of Israel, making her daughter or niece to Ahab, one of Israel's worst kings, 2 Kings 8.26. Athaliah raised her son Ahaziah to reign in the wicked pattern of Ahab and even brought in Ahab's counselors to advise him. You see that in 2 Chronicles 22, 2-4. When Ahaziah was killed in battle, Athaliah seized power and set other sons uh, to, uh, to do evil and desecrated the temple and its sacred things. Find that in 2 Chronicles 24-7. And, and if the, the Joel prophesying around this time, 835 B.C. is accurate, which I think it is, and scholars believe that, then the judgment described was coming at the end of her six-year reign, and, and she was just wicked. And the, the idea is this, there are consequences. Never fear, there are consequences. The Lord sees everything that's going on. And it looks as if Joel is in those last five years of Queen Athaliah. And so this, this army of locusts come, and that's what he talks about. So let's, let's look at verses 5 through 7. Awake, you drunkards, this is what he says to them, and weep and wail. All you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white." Joel is saying that they had gotten drunk and passed out and needed to wake up. That's the idea. You don't, you don't understand what's going on. You've been, you've been intoxicated, and you don't see the absolute devastation that's been left by the, by the locusts. And the locusts are seen as, as a lion. Isn't that what the Bible says about the devil? A roaring lion? So it, it's seen here, the devil, the, the enemy here, these locusts, these, these locusts are seen as an enemy to God's people and it's a lion that has come in, that has come in and has devastated them. Teeth like a lion, like fangs, like a fierce lion. And, and has, has just laid waste. Notice what he says. It laid waste the land, the vines, the fig trees. And it's my land, my vines, and my fig tree. Because in spite of the judgment and in spite of their being drunk and, and under the spell of Athaliah, he's saying, you're still my people. You still belong to me. Now, you messed up, 
and, and, and you've lost so much, but you're still mine. Aren't you glad that he doesn't just throw us away? And, and if it wasn't for the Lord's mercies, Jeremiah said it, we would be utterly consumed. Who could stand? But thank God his mercies are fresh every morning, right? And so this idea is you need to wake up. You don't even understand how bad things have gotten. Isn't it amazing how we, we can be walking along, living for God, and, and then get sidetracked, and, and before we know it, we've backslidden, and all hell's breaking loose in our lives, and things are bad, and we're hurting, and it's tough, but we don't realize I got off track. This has happened because I got off track. He's saying, you need to wake up. You are my people. You need to understand what has happened. Sober up. Sober up. You don't understand. You belong to me. You're my vineyard. Which that whole idea of mine, you belong to me, is, is just really, it's, it's a hint of hope. It's a hint of hope. You're not utterly cast away. Now, verses 8 through 12, there's some instruction that comes here. So you've got instruction in verses 5 through 7. Awake, weep, and wail. And then verses 8 through 12. Lament. Like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. We'll talk about that in a minute. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest mourn who ministered to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed... Here's another instruction. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished, the vine is dried up, and the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Isn't that funny? He kind of enumerates like the fig tree, the pomegranate, the palm, the apple, and all the trees of the field have withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sun's of men. So Joel told Judah they should look at their condition and mourn. The idea is with all the emotion and passion of a young woman who is betrothed to a man engaged in our language and waiting for the wedding day and then he dies. And in that culture she would be considered a widow. And she never got married. So he's saying you should look at yourselves as having lost so much before you even got started. And they should not see this plague of locusts as anything but the Lord using it to get them back to him. In other words, take this seriously. Assess where you are and turn back to me. Turn back to me. Joel doesn't minimize their suffering or downplay it. I'll never forget, I went to the dentist and it was Dr. LeBlanc up here on 73. And it's the only time I ever went to Dr. LeBlanc. I've told y'all about it before. I never had laughing gas before. And that's when they, they said, here's some laughing gas. We're going we're gonna to pull a tooth and we're going to put this laughing gas on, and we're going to give you some shots. And so they gave me all these shots, and I was nervous, you know. And uh, they gave me the laughing gas, and I was taking full advantage of it. 
kind of huffing it, you know what I mean? Get as much as I can. And, uh, yeah, it's, I've told you all that story. So, but but it, it, it's not like Dr. LeBlanc, when he said, this may cause a bit of discomfort. Because that was a lie, Dr. LeBlanc. What he should have said is, this is going to hurt like you can't even imagine. I'm going to crawl up on top of your chest. And I'm gonna I'm gonna get my pliers in your mouth, and I'm gonna break your tooth to pieces, and uh, I mean just like you're gonna shake, and uh, like I mean it was just miserable. That it, it's not it's not like you know he said this may cause a bit of discomfort. That's not the way Joel approached these people. He was saying, listen, you're about to suffer. <laughs> it's it's gonna get bad. There's gonna be some real waste. But it's all about redemption. It's about getting you back to me. The Lord is saying, it's about getting you back to me. And this is what he says, the priests mourn, the land mourns. Be ashamed, you farmers, whale vine dressers. The joy has withered away. It's, it's this vivid, poetic language. And it's saying the whole nation should mourn at this great destruction that started with these locusts. He says that the grain and the drink offering have been cut off. And, and the idea is this, it's, it's remarkable that... They were still doing the grain and the drink offerings even though their heart was a million miles away from the Lord. So they were going through the motions of bringing drink and grain offerings before the Lord in, a, I guess, a traditional or a religious type setting, going through the motions, the, the pomp and circumstance of church, and at the same time, that... that, that uh, that hedge of faith, that, that hedge of protection had been lifted, and they didn't even know it. It's kind of like when Samson said, the Spirit of the Lord has left me, and I didn't even know it. The hedge of protection had lifted, and they did not even realize it. No angels watching over them, working on their behalf. They were drunk. They were intoxicated. They were asleep, but they were very religious. Man, can we ever do that good, can't we? Just go through those motions. There's some parallels we've got to get from this. All Scripture is good and profitable, right, for us to learn from. And we can get some parallels here. We can get some parallels. Going through the motions. But their heart was a million miles away. Verses 13 through 14. Here's some more instruction. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Well, you who minister before the altar, come lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So he paints a picture, really, of what repentance looks like. Everybody say it, Repentance. It's a word we don't like to use in modern church. You know, I've been made the righteousness of God in Him. But there are other scriptures written to the church that says, cleanse your hearts and your minds. you double-minded. Like, come back, return. It's this idea of re repenting. And we'll look, at, we'll look at the idea of repentance here in just a second. It's a word, though, that you don't hear much in the modern church. We like to say, Christ did everything for me. I'm a recipient of all of that. 
and, and everything's fine and hunky-dory. I'm going to tell you something. We can grow cold in our spirit. We can become disillusioned. We can lose our weight. And because we're intoxicated on flesh, not even realize it. And that's what happened here. Of course, under a lesser covenant, but the parallel is there. So here's a picture of what repentance look like, looks like. It starts with the top, with leaders leading the way, the priests, the ministers. And they are commanded to lament, to wail, to lie all night in sackcloth. It's a call for leaders to repent. It's the consecration of a fast. In other words, it's a declaration. It's We're calling this a fast, and it's, it's consecrated, set apart for a holy purpose. Calling a holy, a sacred assembly. Let's get together. Let's focus. Let's get the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord and cry out. Make getting right with God so much more important than even our eating a meal together. Let's get together and not eat for a change. Let's get together and pray and wail and cry out to God and fast. Come to the place where you're supposed to meet with God. Gather together. Cry out to the Lord. And, and it's, the idea of, it's the idea of I need mercy. I am in pain. I have loss. I'm hurting. Are you with me? I told you it was a little gloomy. It's a little gloomy. We got some hope coming here in about five minutes, and I'm done. I'll, I'll leave you with some hope. You remember the game Mercy? When I was a kid, we used to play Mercy where you locked hands, and you tried to bend the other person's hand until they said Mercy. My, my cousin Randy. Hey, Randy. Randy has big old long bony fingers, and he was a beast at Mercy. And the thing, the way I could beat Randy is you had to go quick. So you're like, let's play Mercy. And you try to get him immediately. Or I would lose every time. Like, Mercy, anybody ever played Mercy before? And you know how it is, man. You're like, I am not going to say it. I'm not. And you're, you know, you're backwards. You know, Andrew, you're backwards. You're like, ah! And finally, like, Mercy, Mercy! Mercy. That's where these people were. They were in a place of pain. And the Lord's saying, just cry out for mercy. Just cry out for mercy. The grain offering, the drink offering were withheld from the house of God because there was no grain and there certainly were no grapes. So this is all pain, no grain. All pain, no wine for the offering. Verses 15 through 20, alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of God? The seed shrivels under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down, for the grain is withered. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and the flame has burned all the trees of the field. So now we have some new, an introduction of some new things. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the open pasture. Now we have drought and we have fire. So here's this idea of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. 
Day of the Lord occurs six times in Joel. Six other prophets use it. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Malachi. And the day of the Lord is ultimately when Jesus judges the earth and returns in glory. But in a lesser sense, it's a time of judgment for Judah in our reading here that they're experiencing with the locusts, the drought, and the fire. That's considered to be the day of the Lord as well. The idea behind the phrase, the day of the Lord, is simply this, God's time. Man had his time, now God's going to have his time. You're going to hear what I have to say. The seed shrivels, they have no pasture, the flocks suffer punishment, fire, brooks are dried up. It's just this, it's this, this onslaught started with the locust, and now it's affected everything. Wildfires are raging, it's, it's crazy. And this is the response. Verse 19, to you, O Lord, I cry out. During this time of loss, they just cried out. And I'm closing with this. Luke 13, 1, 1, uh, Luke 13, 1 through 5. We, when we get in hard times, y'all, first thing we say is why, right? Like we're in pain, we're in hurting times and difficult seasons and it's like, trouble. We're like, why? And, and you know, if you're the firstborn, it's like, it's all my fault. You know, it's all my fault. I should have been responsible. If you're the baby, it's like, it's all the firstborn's fault. You know, it's mom and dad's fault. They wouldn't have done that. You know, we, we assign blame, but we ask the question, why? Why is this? Happening? God, why did you let this happen to me? Natural disaster happens. God, how could you let something like that happen? Sickness comes. How could you allow that to happen, God? And, and the question is why. And I want to I help somebody tonight with this. And I'm closing. Luke 13, 1 through 5. Listen to this. There were present at that season. This is an obscure, weird little passage. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Anybody ever done a deep dive on that? And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And then Jesus continues. He brings up something they didn't bring up. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Natural disaster. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifice. We have no record of what this is speaking of specifically. But according to William Barclay, there's a similar incident that took place before the ministry of Jesus. Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct from the pools of Solomon to the city of Jerusalem. And to pay for it, he demanded money from the temple treasury, money that had been dedicated to the Lord. And this caused an outrage among the Jewish population. And so, stand with me right now. So the Jews assembled before Pilate where he would make judgments and sit on his throne. And they protested. And Pilate was so cold-blooded that in that particular story, he got, he got soldiers, centurions, Roman soldiers, legionnaires, to 
dress up in common garb to get out among the people. And at his signal, when those Jews were crying out, saying, give us our money back for our temple, he said, pull these daggers out and kill them. And so the money that would be used for sacrifice was mingled with blood because of the cold-blooded. Sometimes we see Pilate washing his hands like he wasn't that bad of a guy. He was a cold-blooded murderer, y'all. And they're bringing up that story, and they're saying, why? And then Jesus takes it a step further, and he says, what about that leaning tower that fell over and killed these people? And, and, and what Jesus is saying, in a nutshell, is he's, he's saying this. It's not really the proper question to say, why did this happen? The proper question is, where am I in the middle of this? The locusts came. The drought came. The fire was coming, burning things up. The question is not, why? I mean, is it Athaliah? I, well, I didn't even vote for her. The question is, okay, now that I'm feeling this pain, don't let me waste it by getting drunk and ignoring it. Let me be sober and look inward and say, God, I'm sorry for, you know, I've dropped the ball myself in some areas. Some self-assessment. Do you see what I'm saying? Some self-assessment. And I think that we can see that in the book of Joel and from this strange little story in Luke 13. He's saying, here's the idea, repent or perish. And the people that he was saying it to in his ministry, in just 35 years or so, Jerusalem's going to burn to the ground. That temple's going to be totally dismantled. And those who didn't repent and turn to Jesus, they were going to lose all that stuff anyway. The idea was, don't waste an opportunity. Whatever you're going through, let the Lord use it to help you find a place that's closer and, and more consecrated to the Lord. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? Instead of why, say, how can this better me in my walk with you? Can you close your eyes? Father, a lot of... Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed. For more information on our church, Pastor Donovan, or service times, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.